There's a scene in The Incredibles, the, the original movie, where Mr. Incredible comes back from a really bad day at work, and he gets out of the car, he closes the door, and he sees a kid standing on the sidewalk. Do you guys know this scene? Okay, well, think of the second scene that this happens. He sees the kid standing on the sidewalk, and he's like, what are you waiting for? And the kid had been there before, previously, when the car had pulled into the driveway. Mr. Incredible had got, he was really frustrated. He ended up picking up the whole car, and he was ready to throw it. He's a superhero. He's got superpower strength, and the kid's standing there blowing a gum bubble, and the bubble pops, and he's just like... So the second time, the kid's sitting there waiting, and Mr. Incredible says... What are you waiting for? And the kid says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. And as we sit in silence with God, we're waiting for something amazing. It's fruitful time. So last week, Kevin started us off in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. So we're doing five weeks in Isaiah. This is the second week. Isaiah was this prophet who was writing about 700 B.C., and he was bringing God's word to Israel. And what he had to say was sometimes really good and sometimes really, really hard. Last week, we were looking at Isaiah chapter 1, in which God calls Israel to account. He had made Israel into this great nation to bless the world, to be a blessing. But over hundreds of years, Israel just got stuck in this lockstep pattern of externally appearing to follow religious rules, but as a people, they were oppressing each other. And they were using religious rules to oppress each other. They were not being a blessing to the world, let alone internally to each other. And God says something really hard to them in Isaiah 1. And I'll paraphrase. He basically says, I hate your religious celebrations. It's as bad as if God said, I hate your Sunday morning services. Like, can you feel that? Oh, what are we doing? We're going to sit in the harshness of this for a bit because it's bad news, but it helps us recognize the good news when it comes. I mean, the fact that we have good news is because there was bad news. Has anybody received bad news before? Yeah, And you know the craving grows for good news in the middle of bad news. So the Bible makes us painfully aware of the bad news so that we can actually crave and embrace the good news when we hear it, okay? Okay, so here's good news. Greenbelt is celebrating its 50th anniversary in four weeks. Yay! I know, that is good news. And in fact, who's helping with that? We've got like this clandestine team of volunteers. Who's helping? Can you please put your hands up? Please. Okay, okay, okay. Can you guys give them a hand? Like, it is so worth it to have a celebration. Thank you guys so much. We want to worship God for what he's done over the past 50 years. And as we look back, we look forward to Greenbelt's future. And we want God to position us to be an even greater blessing to the whole world. We want people to come in here and receive good news and be transformed. Who wants to be part of that? 
50 years of good news and transformation, yeah, it's going to be good, okay? Now, as we read Isaiah, it's helping shape our view of who God is, and it gives us an opportunity to be transformed by him first before we go offer the good news and opportunity for transformation to others. So before we find out how that transformation happens, Isaiah chapter 1 invites the reader to start out by radically humbling themselves by facing the bad news. It's very humbling. God's bad news to Israel is you've sinned. You've been oppressive. You've been unjust. And that stops us dead in our tracks. And we go, whoa, we want nothing to do with that. How do we get out if we're in it? And then with the bad news in chapter one, God immediately offers good news. In verse 18, he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It's good news. So even as God tells them that he hates their religious celebrations, he's saying there's hope. You're stuck in this, but there's hope. And I'm going to get you out of it. I'm I'm going to make you clean. And so God tells them what to do immediately after. He says, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And this means not just like stop oppressing people. Don't even let other people get oppressed. Go stop the oppression from happening. It's quite the mission statement. Here's your mission. (laughs) Don't just be good. Go get out there and go seek out the people who need what I'm doing. Now, just going and doing good stuff like that doesn't wash away the sin that God's bringing up in here. So when he says, I'm going to cleanse your sin, I'm going to make it white as snow. It's, it's not the idea of karma as if like you could go do enough good things to make your sin go away. As if it could help your guilt, right? You do a whole bunch of good things and then you stop feeling guilty. No, you guys know it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you might have experienced that. You try living a good life. It doesn't change what you're feeling inside. So how exactly does God propose to clean away sin and transform sinful oppressors into active advocates and protectors for the vulnerable. It's going to be good. Am I uh, breathing into the mic a little bit? Can you guys hear that? Okay. I don't want to distract for the rest of this because it's going to be exciting. Okay, so we're looking at oppressors being transformed. And we're going to skip to chapter 11 of Isaiah. And if you have a YouVersion Bible app on your uh, phone, please do pull that out. Uh, we have Wi-Fi here in the, um, what do you call it, sanctuary. So if you want to download it on your phone, I give you permission to go play on your phone for a few minutes. Download the YouVersion Bible app. If you're online, you can uh, download that app and open up to any English translation that you want. I'm going to be using the New International Version. We also have paper Bibles here. Uh, Does anybody want a paper, like physical paper Bible to take home with you? Or do you know somebody who he would like to give a paper Bible to? Anybody? We have a whole pile of them, like these Bibles. We have them piled at the back. Take one and give it away, okay? You have permission to steal. (laughs) (laughs) Online, if you want a paper Bible, email office at greenbelt.church. 
office at greenbelt.church, and we will mail a Bible to you. We'll get your information and get it sent out to you. Yes, it is nice. Okay, so the message of Isaiah 11 is for you. If you have felt oppressed, in other words, hurt, by someone, an organization, your circumstances, and it's messed with your life. Isaiah 11 is also for you if you've tried to be really good and you've messed up. Does that encompass about everybody? Yeah, good. Okay, we're all in the same boat. We all need this. Okay, so sin. Sin oppresses. Sin oppresses others when we actively do wrong and when we fail to do the right thing. And we all need saving from this. Isaiah is going to give this to us. Christians, it is especially for us who claim to have been saved. Who say, yeah, I know Jesus. He saved me from my sin. And then we mess up. And then we mess up. Salvation is not a one-time event like, yeah, I was saved. Salvation is a state of being. I was saved. I am being saved. I'm going to be ultimately totally perfectly saved. This is what we live in. And it starts with salvation at the beginning, and we'll get there later. Now, we can feel afraid of oppressing other people or of being oppressed, hurting others, being hurt. But listen to what Isaiah prefaces So just before chapter 11, in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, Do not be afraid of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were the nation that were about to oppress Israel. So he's saying, don't be afraid of the oppressors. And you're like, I have no idea how to do that. Like, how do I not be afraid of people who hurt me? Just after chapter 11, in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, Isaiah breaks out into the song of response to what God says in chapter 11. And he says, I will trust and not be afraid. So guess what? We're in the right place to figure out what is it that causes Isaiah to be transformed from being afraid of his oppressors into fearlessness and trusting God. So if we think that fear is a good protector, you know, like it, it, it's what compels us, motivates us to keep people at bay and, and try to keep ourselves safe, keep the danger out there. When we do that, fear is actually causing us to become oppressive to other people. It is what fear does. So what chapter 11 says about how we could be transformed and rescued from that, from fear, very important. Okay, verse one, chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, Jesse was the father of King. Yes. I heard some kids saying that. I know you're listening in Sunday school. So King David, who lived and was king about 200, 250 years before Isaiah. He was an imperfect king who God loved dearly. And who loved God dearly. But listen to this. He forcibly took another man's wife. He slept with her, got her pregnant. And she likely feared for her life. She had no higher court to appeal to to say, 
somebody did something wrong to me. The king was the highest level of justice. And I know we hear it called adultery, you know, King David's adultery. This was rape, guys. It's very, very sobering. This is oppression. And that kind of oppression gets passed down to David's descendants and just gets worse. And God warns them over and over, stop oppressing each other. And they don't. And so finally God withdraws his protection from Israel and the oppressive nations around start swooping in. Can you hear the irony in that? Israel's oppressing each other. God's like, stop it. And then he lets the oppressive nations start to have control over Israel. And so this dynasty of kings totally loses uh, power and they become pretty much like a lifeless stump. So what we're reading is this dynasty of kings totally wiped out, except God's saying there's going to be life out of this lifeless stump. So verses two and a bit of three, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So just to clarify, verse one, that shoot coming up out of the stump, that was a person. It is a person and it's an incredible person who is marked by the Holy Spirit of God. Who would like this kind of person to have charge of like just about everything? Somebody who is just steeped in God's Holy Spirit. This person is marked by the fear of God. And we're figuring out how do we get free of this? Well, here's a person who's free of it. He's afraid of nothing except God. That's what the fear of the Lord means in the Bible. Have you ever felt underwhelmed by God? Yeah, like frustrated. Where is his power? Where is his strength? Where are the miracles? It takes courageous vulnerability to expose ourselves, to open ourselves up to the God of the universe and say, I give you permission to overwhelm me. Give me the fear of the Lord. When we fear, we actually end up abdicating our will To become compelled to act by whatever we're afraid of. Let me say that again. When we fear something or someone, we abdicate our will. And we act compelled by that thing, our fear of that thing. If we fear what is not God, we get compelled to act in ways that are not good and healthy. But if we're afraid, we're, we're fearing God, we're compelled by God. And he will compel us to act in good and healthy ways. Who would actually consider being willing to allow God to overwhelm you? Your willingness in it is an invitation God, overwhelm us. Show us a life of fear of the Lord and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And this perfect ruler that we're reading about is compelled by God alone. Every act that he makes, the fear of the Lord. 
So the rest of verse three, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy and with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth and he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With a breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. This is the complete opposite, the antithesis of oppression. This is someone seeking to do exactly what God said in chapter one. Seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. He's doing that. And so the fear of the Lord is part of being able to do these things. Let's read verse six. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. There they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the effect of the perfect, unoppressive king ruling. It's so good. So good. There's no reason left to fear predators and powerful creatures because they've been transformed. They are submitting their strength and power in service to the most vulnerable creatures we know. Babies. Baby animals, even, and children and infants. Now, let's put it into human terms. The people who have the most strength, who are the most capable of being oppressive, become the greatest servants. Think of all of this in symbolic terms. You who are physically strong, this is you. Those who are opinionated and strong-willed, this is us. The most capable of becoming oppressive. And every one of us has the capacity to oppress others. It's us who have to be transformed. And then we get to marvel at each other's gentleness and sweetness with the most vulnerable in our midst. I remember in youth group once, there was a teen guy who offered to help one of the leaders. Uh, uh, she had a baby. The baby was a bit fussy, and she needed to lead a activity. And so this teen guy takes the baby, goes off in a corner, is just bouncing and patting, and he misses the activity. And I was like, I, I've never seen that before. The guy laid down his opportunity and his strength to help in what was pretty much the most inglorious way of helping at youth group. He got no honor for that other than he's off in the corner and a few people are like, where did he go? We see what he's doing. uh, Strength submitted to the vulnerable. All the dads and big brothers of babies are like, hey, I do that all the time. Yes, you guys are awesome. Thank you. I totally notice. Okay, we notice. (laughs) Okay, verse 9. Verse 9 had said, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. 
This is the reason why the predators were all transformed. The word for can mean for this reason. The earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, we know that the church has not always done a really great job of spreading the knowledge of the Lord and the earth. It has been really bad news as pastors and missionaries and ministry leaders and priests in the Catholic Church have been brought to justice for oppressing people. Just this past week, the Catholic Pope was in Canada to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in oppressing First Nations people under the guise of spreading the knowledge of the Lord. I feel, um, I feel really emotional. It is good to be sad about this. It's good to identify with the, unless you're First Nations, for us to identify with the oppressors and be repentant and mourn over it. This perfect king is different. His rule causes the earth to become full of the knowledge of the Lord without any oppression. I mean, Greenbelt, over our next 50 years, how much do we want the knowledge of the Lord to spread because of what God's doing in us without oppression? No oppression. Okay, let's keep reading about this unoppressive ruler. In verse 10, it says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Basically everywhere. So as we read up to verse 10, we were reading about this king and the effect of his rule. And then all of a sudden we shift to hearing about God rescuing. And we might have thought that The perfection that we were reading about was at the end times, like at the end of everything, everything's going to be perfect. It's going to be amazing. And yes, it is a glimpse of the end, but it's also happening. What Isaiah is saying is happening as people are in the middle of needing rescue, which means it's talking about right here and now oppressive people being transformed now, us being transformed now and seeing evidence of this perfection now. Remember the whole underwhelmed by God? We're actually expected to see really incredible, amazing things now. In verse 12, we read, He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. And Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. Ephraim and Judah are two parts of Israel, and they have been separated. And so what we're reading about is transformation happening inside of God's people. There is a bigger problem than the external oppressors. The Assyrians are out there. But guess where the oppression is already happening? After King David died, his son Solomon reigned. And yes, he built this amazing big temple and he built this beautiful big palace, but he did it all on the backs of his people. Taxes and hard labor. It was oppressive. And Solomon's son, even more oppressive. 
and kingdom split. Judah to the south, and then you have Israel to the north, which is what Ephraim represents here. And in Jesus' time, you'll recognize the province of Judea to the south and the regions of Samaria and Galilee to the north. And these regions did not like each other. The regions remained unfriendly to each other for a very long time. Talk about vendetta, like generational vendetta against each other. They all believe in Yahweh, Elohim, God. But internally, they can't stand each other. And so they oppress each other. Who's seen that happen inside the church? Yeah. I mean, how much distrust and hatred and accusation is there inside the church because one person got vaccinated and another didn't? One person chose to wear a mask even when the restrictions were down and another didn't. And then people got criticized no matter what they chose to do. We were trying to compel each other to do things. This turns into oppression inside the church. Here in verse 13, though, God's promising that the jealousy and hostility between the people of God would actually be dissolved. Anyone suspect that God can repair the hostility and jealousy inside the church? Yes. Oh, it's worth wanting because we need it and we need it constantly. Like, Father God drive out the hostility and jealousy inside the church and reconcile your people. Amen. Yes. I'm going to skip to John chapter 4. So you can open up with me there. I'm just going to spend a few minutes. John chapter 4 is the fourth book of the New Testament. And John chapter 4 is, is talking about Jesus. And Jesus, as a Jew... And a man is at a well and asks a Samaritan woman, remember the divide between the regions, asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. And this is what her response is in verse 9 of chapter 4. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in brackets, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, Jesus redirects that conversation He reminds her that she's not in the best of circumstances. She's been married five times. And the context for this is that only the men could initiate divorce in ancient times, or at least in this culture, in the Jewish culture. And so she's been kicked out of the house five times. She's probably hard to deal with. But how worthless and rejected do you think she feels? She could not have survived well on her own as a woman. So how desperate do you think she is to indiscriminately do whatever a man wants in order to get provision? She's in a position pretty close to slavery. That's a scary way to live, having no other choice other than to live in oppression in order to preserve your life. Guys, and PG warning here, sex trafficking and pornography. This. Okay, And here's Jesus, a Jew, who just walks right in and talks with her and super, supernaturally knows her life, but is not disgusted by her. Imagine two Christians sitting beside each other, one masked and one not, one vaccinated and one not, and they're not disgusted by each other. 
It would be nice. So now the woman is living with a man who's not her husband. And Jesus brings it up not to condemn her, but to acknowledge the tough circumstance that she's in. This is your bad news right now, but I've got good news. And then Jesus tells her that he's the Messiah, the perfect king who the Samaritans and Jews had been waiting for. That has powerful personal meaning for her because she believes that when the Messiah is here, her circumstances will change. That's how meaningful it is. Her personal life is going to change. And so she ends up leading her whole town into believing in and following Jesus. Jesus knows how to level the hostility and jealousy. So here what we're reading, let me skip back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 13. The jealousy and hostility between the people of God dissolving and Jesus we recognize as the perfect unoppressive king who unoppressively fills the land with the knowledge of the Lord. Do you suspect it might be worth it to let that unoppressive king Jesus have charge of like everything in our lives? So verse 14, we read, they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. So it sounds like Israel's military strength is returned because of the perfect king. But in history, Israel has never regained military strength until recently, and it has not been perfect. In fact, it's involved a lot of conflict and oppression between the Israelis and the Palestinians and between Israel and the surrounding nations. Except that that there are Israeli and Palestinian Christians coming to know Jesus, meeting with each other, often hidden because it's dangerous for them to do that in the open. But they're loving each other because of Jesus. Regions reconciled because of Jesus there are there are Christians in Israel meeting with Christians in surrounding nations and saying we're so sorry we're so sorry for what's happening for the conflict and oppression I don't want any part of it please accept my apology can you see that the hostility and jealousy between the believers and followers of Jesus dissolved Jesus Healing people and teaching an incredibly amazing leader walking around Israel suddenly stops his ministry and lets the oppressive Romans capture him, brutally beat him, and put him to death. And then he did something no human ruler or leader or king ever did. And he rose from the dead. If it's one thing that you crave when you experience a really good leader, it's that they'll be so strong that they never die and they can just keep on leading and you'll be set for your whole life. And your children will be fine too because they can follow that leader. Jesus did that. So when we read in chapter 14 about plunder, Jesus clarified something he wanted the Israelites to deal with throughout the Old Testament. It wasn't the external oppressors. It was the source of oppression sin and the apostle paul wrote this 30 or 40 years after jesus returned to heaven in ephesians 4 you don't have to open there but listen ephesians 4 chapter or sorry ephesians 4 verse 12 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is that serious enough for you? The source of oppression, the source of sin. It's not human, it's spiritual. So what Isaiah prophesied was not about Israel crushing their human enemies. The oppressive, and the oppressive nations were fueled by the spiritual source of oppression. And those same spiritual forces are hell-bent on oppressing us and causing us to oppress others. What Isaiah prophesied was that God's people would become victorious over this. Jesus, the strongest person in the whole universe, submitted his strength and power in service to the most vulnerable in our midst, which so happens to be every single one of us, vulnerable to the spiritual forces. While he was alive, he faced the human oppressors and laid his life down to save others. In death, he faced the spiritual oppressors and he won. He won on our behalf because we could never manage to win against the spiritual oppressors. But he could. Who wants that kind of victory for yourself? Yeah, of course. But how do we access that victory? How does it become reality? So let's read the last two verses here in uh, Isaiah 11. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when he came up from Egypt. God's people have been stuck in captivity. Guys, Christians stuck in captivity to sin. Christians living in disunity with each other, frustrated and angry and suspicious and distrustful and accusatory. And we look at each other like the other is the Samaritan. And in verses 15 and 16, we're reading that God obliterates the blocks from that remnant, the people of God being restored into safety together. Ephraim and Judah that used to be angry at each other, they've all gone into captivity together. They are reconciled and brought into safety together. Jesus so gracefully walked right across those divisions to bring rescue to one Samaritan woman. He did it without fixing the minutia of religious differences between Jew and Samaritan. And his aim was to bring hope to the one other dejected person who was sitting right in front of him. Jesus approached the Samaritan woman and essentially said, I am the one you have been waiting for. Christians, Jesus is the one you have been waiting for. Jesus is the highway that God provides. Jesus called himself the way. And as we step onto that highway, we welcome Jesus to be our way out of being oppressed and of oppressing others. We become transformed from a position of oppressing and being oppressed. And Jesus transports us into a position of safety. He is the highway. 
And stepping onto that highway is the step of repentance and forgiveness. That's safety, repentance and forgiveness. So I'm going to pray for a few minutes and ask God to show each of us what he wants to do in us individually and respond. So if God has brought up somebody who has hurt you or somebody who you've hurt and felt guilty about, we're going to give Jesus the opportunity to be our highway right now out of that into safety, okay? So I want you to close your eyes and just rest wherever you're sitting and pay attention and welcome what the Holy Spirit does. Father God, we have been hurt by others. We acknowledge this in order to welcome you to do something. Bring rescue. The pain lingers and it twists our hearts and it makes us unable to trust you, Father God, unable to love others, sometimes unable to hope that things will get better. But Jesus, we're willing to believe that you're the highway. So make your blood that you shed and your pain and your death on the cross swallow up our hurt and dissolve that pain. Keep your eyes closed, but you here in the room and you online, I invite you to forgive the person who's hurt you. Enter into the safety by asking Jesus to take that hurt from you and heal you. Come bring that release from the hurt and cut off the connection between it and us and wash it off of us. And Jesus, we're willing to trust that your blood and your death are able to swallow that hurt. So we forgive the person very consciously and intentionally. We forgive the person who's hurt us. And we accept your promise that you rescue us. Holy Spirit, make us fear God alone. Holy Spirit, remove the blocks that prevent us from stepping onto the highway. And empower us from the inside to step onto that highway. In Jesus' name, the way be opened before us to freely walk into safety. Jesus, be the perfect, unoppressive king of our lives. 
And if you felt something come up that you've hurt somebody else with, walk into that repentance. Jesus, save me from oppressing. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I embrace your forgiveness. I forgive myself. I welcome your blood to cleanse me, body and soul, from this sin. Holy Spirit, come take over the place that used to be filled with this sin and fill me with your life-giving presence. Holy Spirit, fill with your life-giving presence over everybody in this room and everybody online, the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit. worship team to come back up but I'm going to just finish with one last thing you can keep your eyes closed keep your eyes closed and enter worship with your eyes closed if you're welcoming Jesus for the first time tell someone come tell me if you're in the room and you need somebody to tell if you're online a pop-up has come up in the chat that says I accept Jesus click that pop-up and let us walk alongside you on this highway and help you become acquainted with Jesus.